everybody. Welcome to your episode 242 of the At Percussion podcast. Today's date is July 12th, and if you're listening to this on release date, it is August 6th. With me today, as always, are Carly Vina. Hey, everybody. Ksenia Kamilovich. Hey, Ben. Good job. Thanks. Working on, on Ksenia's name for quite a while now. <laughs> and, uh, and the lovely Casey Cangelosi. You know, people have told me Cangelosi is not how you say it, so you're probably saying my name wrong, too. <laughs> Casey. Yeah. No, really. People have told me it's always singers. They're like, Cangelosi? Wait, how do you spell that? I'm like, well, like this. And they're like, that's not how you say it. I'm like, what? Well, okay. That's like how we've always said it. And then I've been to Italy several times and I've confirmed, no, I say it right from where. Do I need to do, do I need to do my Italian accent? Well, yes. you will in a minute. Because... With me today is Casey Cangelos. <laughs> well, well, that's that's perfect segue because today on August 6th is Barbara Strozzi's birthday. Hey, a cubanza. Scucarabanza, bologna. Is that good? That's wonderful. Yeah. So uh, she, was, she was born in 1619. And you've probably heard of Barbara Strozzi. She's really famous. And she's one of the most prolific and probably the most prolific female composer and virtuoso vocalist, and I believe Ludus from the Baroque era. So she's kind of one of those rare people that got, got her, her music out there as a female and didn't have to use a male pseudonym or, or anything like that. So today is her birthday, so happy birthday, Barbara Strozzi. Do you all know anything about Barbara Strozzi? Just now. Just nope. that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, just... Applause for being a trailblazer. Yeah. Well, and she, um, one thing I'd say, her, her, her father was a poet and a fit, quite a famous poet. So I guess he had a lot to do with encouraging her and making sure her publications got out there. But she was one of the most prolific composers during her lifetime, male or female. So, yeah, pretty awesome. cool. So happy birthday. Well, our uh, guests for today are Patty Nimi returning. Uh, she was on At Percussion episode 99, and we convinced her to come back after all these about 150 episodes later, as well as Chris DeVinney. Patty is a member of the San Francisco Opera Orchestra and was previously a member of the New World Symphony under Michael Tilson Thomas. She's recorded an album of Christopher Rouse's chamber music with New York's Concordia Orchestra, including his Kuka Ilimoku and Ogun Batagri. Her memoir, Sticking It Out, recounts her journey to a professional music career. And Chris is the principal percussionist of the Philadelphia Orchestra and has also performed and recorded with the Houston Symphony, Toronto Symphony, and New York Philharmonic, among others. He's on the faculty of Temple University and has developed a line of mallets for innovative percussion. Chris also relatively recently arranged and performed Pat Metheny's Imaginary Day uh, with Shi Wu and the Philadelphia Orchestra. So welcome, Patty and Chris. Thank you. Hello. Well, uh, to get started, since I already mentioned it, Chris, I, I would love to hear about this concerto project that you had with Shi Yu Wu. <clears throat> um, well, it was a long time coming. Um, quite a few years ago. Uh, I, first of all, I should say I'm a huge Pat Metheny fan. I have been since I was young, very young. Um, I consider him to be kind of the, uh, well, both he and Lyle Mays, who just recently passed away, a keyboard player. Um, the two of them, um, Writing-wise, I consider them to be, in, in the jazz language, to be the most influential since uh, maybe Ira and George Gershwin, really. Um, and so anyway, uh, as a fan, I was listening one day to um, the Imaginary Day album years ago and 
and three tracks in particular kind of struck me as being rather orchestral in nature. And I just got this idea that like, what, what if that could somehow turn into a percussion concerto or a duo percussion concerto specifically? Because I, I really do like the combination of vibraphone and marimba, um, harkening back to the double image days of uh, Friedman Samuels. So um, I then started on this journey of trying to uh, find Pat on a concert tour and ask him if it was okay if I pursued this. He was totally fine about it. Um, I started arranging it for orchestra. So I just started taking the tracks and listening to what I heard. You know, this sounds kind of like a brass section. This kind of sounds string. This is kind of woodwind oriented, putting them all together. I had never orchestrated anything um, on this magnitude, uh, but I just started into it. And then I pushed it in front of our administration. And to my surprise, they actually were very receptive to it. Unfortunately, we were also going through a music director change at the time. And that delayed it by years, like almost 10 years, um, before it finally got performed. And um, it did, and Chi Yi, Wu, and I premiered it here in Philadelphia with the orchestra in um, 2017. Not a bad dual partner at all, by the way. <laughs> uh, I've known Chi Yi for, for, for years. Um, she and I um, taught together at Rutgers where she was before moving to Northwestern. And um, I played duos with her and, and other uh, projects with her. I've gone to her seminar. She and I actually hosted the Alan Abel uh, Orchestral Seminar for 10 years together. So um, I've known her for a, a lot of years. And when it came to dividing up who was gonna play marimba or vibes, I, I felt like probably marimba for she would be the best choice. How can we hear it? Is it recorded? Is it published somewhere? It's uh, now I, I did all the publishing. Um, it, I can send you uh, an MP3 of it, but it's it's not out on a on a, a professional um, recording. Is there like. plans to do it again in the near future? I'm sure COVID put another couple of years in the way. I'm going to say that because literally March, uh, the first week 16. in March, I was actually in London rehearsing with. Uh, there for uh, five days to rehearse with the to play it with the bbc concert orchestra oh my god i came back on march 13th friday the 13th we were supposed to have finals of our percussion audition on the 15th sunday that actually got postponed and march 16th hit and the whole thing just basically fell apart so i didn't oh get no. to go back over and play it um hopefully they'll reschedule it and um that's yeah that was covid definitely affected that project it sucks. That's heartbreaking. Bullseye yeah. COVID. You really, you really hit that one on. on right on. Yeah. It, um, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Casino. It reminds me, uh, Ed Smith's World Percussion Group, D Drum, had like the same thing with their uh, um, Stuart Copeland concerto when a blizzard came through and screwed it all up. <laughs> Dude, Pius Cheng wrote a ballet, and it's like it's looking like it won't happen till 2022 or something. Oh, God. That's why COVID happened. They just wanted to stop Pius Cheng. Yeah, I'm all, I'm all for it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so, Sorry, you go ahead. It would probably take something like COVID to stop Pius Cheng. <laughs> probably, yeah. yeah. Casey's not been trying hard enough recently. <laughs> Took a pandemic miasma. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask about uh, the reactions, your own reactions upon listening to your orchestration, because that must be really special. That's giant. And then the orchestra members' reactions, the audience reactions. How was all of that received? Um, 
I would say very well, actually. Um, you know, um, percussion, I think, uh, for the modern orchestra, we're, we're kind of the last frontier, I kind of feel like. Um, but uh, surprisingly, even though that's kind of the, one of the last areas that's been fully d discovered, it's also one of the ones that are easily dismissed or, or less willing to be tried for fear of the unknown. And so, of course, that was one of the things working against my piece was because it was premiere, could be really good, could be really bad, no one knows. And um, since we didn't have a music director, whoever was gonna be coming in front of the orchestra was potentially on our shortlist for music director and no one wanted to touch it, um, which I understand because they wanna tailor their own program uh, when they come and conduct us. Um, so I understand how these things work, but uh, it was very frustrating. As far as the reaction goes, uh, the audience, I think, dug it a lot. They um, went crazy. It was, it was wonderful. Being modest, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was also, I was very, um, I was very nervous about putting any product in front of my colleagues, honestly, because, you know, these people I play with day to day, and um, I was constantly checking parts to make sure I didn't have long notes. Um, I was literally putting individual parts in front of my own colleagues that I know and, and, and trust in the orchestra and saying, hey, look at this. Does this visually look like something that you can easily play or what, what looks odd about this? And because um, the last thing I wanted was someone to you know, be looking at my piece and saying, wait, what's this? This is terrible. <laughs> There's so much that can go wrong. Like instruments yeah. transpose and yeah. Yeah, we've all seen that train wreck where it's the first rehearsal and the conductor just can't figure out why it sounds this way. It's like, oh, the parts in B flat are not in B flat or <laughs> that's all it, I, I was sweating that for the last three months or so four months leading up to it and that's all I was thinking about I was kept up at night actually did Pat Matheny hear it I sent it to him you know um and I saw Pat a month before I, I premiered it at a at a concert in New Jersey he happened to be in town uh, in in the country and um you know Pat's he's a very nice guy he's a very busy guy he's he's constantly touring and um you know, he basically, I, I, I told him about it. He said, yeah, he actually had to do a retirement party for the president of his uh, recording label. And he was going to be in New York the Saturday of the week we were doing it. He said, but I'm sorry, I can't come down to Philadelphia because I'm supposed to play New York Counterpoint um, for that retirement party. And I haven't played that in like 15 years and I've got to practice. And, you know, I, when I heard that, I was like, well, okay, you know, I mean, if he's not going to come to see me, then he's got a legit reason. But he didn't, I, I mean, to be fair, he also wasn't like, oh, wow, that sounds, I'm really excited. Well, he was just kind of like, all right, well, good luck with that, you know. <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, uh, Patty, I, when I was writing up your little bio to put on the, the Facebook post for this, I, I noticed that you recorded an album of Christopher Rouse's music, which I mentioned. Um, and Christopher Rouse uh, passed away not too long ago. We talked about that on the podcast when he did. Uh, did you work with Christopher Rouse on that? I did not. No, that was, um, that was already like 20 years ago now. I was spending a lot of time in New York at the time. And um, uh, it was Marin Alsop's group. Um, obviously she wasn't conducting any of that. So it was a group of um, freelance players from New York. It was great fun. I mean, it was, it was a thrill to do it, but he wasn't involved directly in that. Gotcha. Um, had, well, he's had, had a kind of a long history though with the Philadelphia Orchestra, you know, his family's from Philadelphia. Um, they're uh, known architects actually. 
and uh, so, you know, um, it wasn't just a musical connection, it was actually a, a logistical connection with the Philadelphia area that he um, became a known name here. Wow. Cool. Well, we've had a, a few legends in the percussion field pass away recently. Um, I wanted to mention on today's episode that uh, PAS Hall of Famer Joe Percaro uh, passed away just a few days ago. Um, and his son, Jeff Percaro, we all know as the drummer from Toto, but Joe was also quite a well-known drummer in his own right, played a lot with Emil Richards. And then one other name that's passed away recently, and actually we did a tribute episode to him a few episodes ago, was Alan Abel, who I'm sure Chris has quite a few uh experiences to share with us about Alan Abel, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, it's very sad. Um, Alan Abel was 91. Um, and, you know, when people think, and he did die of COVID, um, when people think of, um, when they hear that, some people roll their eyes and say, well, he was 91, but you, you don't really understand until you meet this guy. Uh, he could have easily lived another 10 years or more. He was in great shape. Um, very. That's, that's exactly what Ted Ack had said as well. Yeah, very vivacious guy, um, and 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 I've talked to many people who literally just saw him at PAS um, at PASIC in November, where he was walking around. He was very always very proud to wear his Hall of Fame badge, which um, I, I'll never know what that's like, but uh, I, I can imagine it's a is a very um, understandably proud thing. And he loved just uh, talking to people of all sorts, and um, he was a, a huge force in my life and many other people's lives, and. I, it's just, it's really, just really kind of sad for me to think that of all things that was going to, that we're going to take this guy out, it was, it was a COVID virus, you know, I mean, it's just, it's hard to fathom, really. Patty, you know, I, I was going to ask, speaking of Alan Abel and this tribute episode we did, and everyone spoke so many great things about Mr. Abel's personality and just how he was as a person. And in your book, Sticking It Out, you shine a light on some not-so-nice teachers and a not-so-nice culture that uh, hopefully is kind of hopefully is going away and is less common. But I was just wondering, what's the, what's the status of your authorship? I feel like you were contemplating something new to write or you were doing book tours way back when we, we were talking to you? What's, uh, what's, what's shaken? Um, I've been in the process of writing another book for okay. about, uh, let's see, maybe five or six years now. It takes a lot longer than I thought. It's the not like one, writing a paper for school? Yeah, it's a lot harder, or at least it is for me. So <laughs> papers are pretty. I thought it would be, you know, having done it once, I thought, oh, well, now it's, it's easier to get published. And at least I've found that that's not the case. It's still pretty hard. So, sure. Can you tell us anything about it? Is it post happily ever after the winning a job happiness bliss? <laughs> a lot of it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's about music and opera. And I mean, I've been really lucky. This is my, well, until now it was my 28th year with the opera and I've just loved it to death. I've, I mean, the playing I've done has been amazing and the colleagues I've worked with, similar you know it's like we have had a lot of fun so that's kind of what I wanted to write about is just opera and music and it ended up turning into I mean I kind of started it as fiction and you know it's morphed a few times and cool. then I turned it back into basically a continuation of the first book it's just the next 30 years or so do you know what it'll be called yet I don't any is ideas? it gonna be another cool pun I don't know I didn't even come <laughs> up with that title so the publisher did I, 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 <laughs> Stuck it out. 
past. It's two. actually pretty good. That's, That's pretty good. good. Hanging it up, maybe. I'm getting close to retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take my royalty check. <laughs> um, well, I wanted to ask a question actually about that because I, I didn't have the privilege to be a host on the show when you were first a guest, Patty. But uh, I read your book and I, uh, I appreciated learning about a lot of the, the growing pains that you were so open about. And a couple of the things that you mentioned about learning how to navigate the environment when you first entered New World. And I particularly think about the situation that you mentioned with um, your colleague, Laura, and how um, I, I think this is a very interesting sort of moral dilemma, especially for a lot of us who are educators or have any sort of uh, influence on, on other people. But um, I guess the, the situation where you approached her with um, the other members of the section and spoke to her about her devoted or divided, sorry, devotion, as you mentioned it, right? Yeah. Right. And for those of you who do not know, and I know a lot of people do because I posted that I read the book and so many people texted me. They were like, oh, I read this. This is awesome. This is on my list and so on. Um, but for those of you who do not know, uh, Laura was also accepted as the first generation New World uh, Symphony percussionist, right? But one thing that sort of stood out about her was that she wasn't quite as driven as the rest of you, right? Um, and so um, the, the three of you went and spoke to her and I really wondered about that approach to a person when you sort of notice that they might not, that this might not be for them, but perhaps they're in denial. How do you gingerly have that conversation? And it seemed like she uh, received it pretty well, right? You said that she, she was initially sad, but that she actually came to, came to this idea that she should go and do missionary work. Um, but can you please just share a little bit about that? Just because that's something that I think about a lot. And I think that you, I think she, she was very grateful you did the right thing, but it wasn't easy. It was not easy. And yeah. in the way, I'm a little bit horrified thinking back now because it sounds really arrogant and presumptuous for us to have done that. And in a way it was, you know, um, we were young and maybe that's my only excuse. Mm -hmm. um, and like you said, it turned out well because she's, she ended up saying, you know, maybe this is the, was the sign I was looking for was <laughs> you guys coming and talking to me. And we tried to be really kind and open and we were just saying you know new world is really even then you know new world everybody knows what new world has become now but even uh 30 years ago 32 years ago it was still it was the same it was very very pointed and narrow it wasn't like even being in school it was taking all the people who just wanted to play in an orchestra who just wanted to take auditions and putting them in one place mm -hmm. and so we felt like you know the playing we did down there uh, was really intense and our workload was heavy and in addition to doing this heavy workload of playing we were practicing all the time for auditions mm -hmm. so we felt like there was a disconnect with her she was not doing that she was not practicing she was not um, doing quite the same amount of work that we were and you know I mean we're still friends I love her to death she's wonderful and and we all got over this very quickly and again, you know, I, I do have some regrets about being so forward with her, but in the end, I think we were just trying to say, look, this is, we're, we're taking a lot of the workload that maybe someone else could come in and do, so. 
Of course. And, and thank you. And I think you did, uh, of course, you presented that with, with that perspective. But I, I was just also wondering, how would you approach a similar situation now? Because you now have an even better understanding of whether someone has it, can, can succeed, or whether they're devoted enough or not. How would you approach it now with this experience? I think both of us run into this when we talk about students. I mean, if it's, if it's not an equal relationship, if you're talking to a student, We've talked about this just about you're kind of obligated to be really honest with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are there are many other paths to go. It's not just orchestral playing, of course, there are other paths. And if they have something in mind that could follow one of these paths, your job is to encourage all of that exploration. Mm -hmm. But you have to be honest about it. You're not doing anyone a favor if they're going into this incredibly narrow field or like a two year graduate degree at Temple. You're not doing them a favor by not being really honest and saying, look, you need to catch up or you need to, I don't know, I guess that's kind of my default is like, if it's that kind of a relationship, a teacher student, mm -hmm. be honest. Yeah, um, along the same lines, um, quite a few times people have um, asked me my opinion about the field or, or specifically going into orchestral playing and, and my, my go-to answer for them usually is, if you could see yourself doing two or three other things and being just as happy as you can see yourself playing in an orchestra, then you should probably go do those things because you're going to be up against people who only want to do the one thing. That's all they want to do. Yeah. And it's not that you can't compete against that. You can, but it's a lot harder because they have one thing that's driving them all the time, every time. And you've got competing things that are, that are, that are telling you to spend your time doing, and eventually those things are gonna collide. Have you ever felt any pressure from, or you all probably haven't, and I know I haven't, because I've, you know, I've got a lot of students, but I know I've heard teachers say, well, we can't tell them to like, like they shouldn't do this program or they should drop out or they should find something else to do because then we won't have jobs and then we won't I, have I think it's like, at that point it's, that's it's like, oh, sorry, Ben. I was going to say at that point, it, it's sort of unethical. I mean, you, you can't agree it, because basically, I mean, they have to pass the classes and if they're not putting in the work, they can't pass the classes. So, but it's a state we're in right now. Like a lot uh, of yeah, I know you programs, mean yeah. a lot but of I, programs. I, I, in I mean, the I will say in, in my experience, I've never had that pressure of do not drive any student away for any reason, you know, like, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's like, I've had conversations about, I, I guess I always put it more of, and I'm not teaching people to take, you know, orchestral auditions, but it becomes more of like uh if, if you want a career in this, if you want to succeed in this, this is what you need to do. And it's up to you if you're willing to put the work in. Yeah. So I think, um, I think we agree it's not, it's, it's not ethical, but like, do, do yeah. we, can we tell anything to encourage those teachers to like, no, be ethical. It's, you won't be fired. <laughs> I mean, I, I will say, uh, this, is, this, is, this is not answering your question directly, but uh, I talked to one of Jack Van Geem's former students uh, a while back, and he said that that Jack had this lovely thing he said, and I wish I could remember the quote, but it was it was along the lines of when they first got on, he said something along the lines of like, I just want you to know that I will not be disappointed if you do not go on to have a career in music. And I think a lot of the time, once you get into a program, like you're you're afraid of like disappointing your teacher, your hero. And, you know, if you get three years in and you decide it's not for you, but you don't want to disappoint them and you keep on pushing, then in five years, you know, after you graduate, you can get into a really sticky, bad situation where you're, you're just miserable. And it was because you were trying to make your undergrad teacher happy. 
Um, so I don't know. That's that's my two cents about it. But um, default um, uh, phrase uh, on Jack's part to say from the beginning. But I've had those conversations along the lines with a few students that have literally told me to my surprise, wouldn't even thinking about it, like, well, I just don't want to disappoint you. And I realized, oh, wow, you're actually doing it from that from that perspective. <laughs> you, you don't need to worry about that. You know, don't don't worry about that. I think you're a great person regardless. It's going to that part's not going to change anything. You know, I have another point to what Casey was saying about, like, you know, this feeling that a school is putting pressure on you in some way to keep the students coming in. I just remember um, Ruth Khan talking to me. I studied with her for six years when I was a little kid from age 12 to 18, and she's, she's just the most wonderful teacher. And she had so much to say about, you can still teach music and you can still learn a tremendous amount from music. So we can keep teaching these students music. They don't have to be professional musicians, but it's like any incredible art form that they're learning from. So, so I think you can honestly keep teaching them but the honest conversation comes about where, what do they do afterwards? What do they do with that knowledge? Do they need something else in their life that they're more attracted to? Yeah, cool. Well, uh, Patty, looping back around to New World Symphony for just a minute, since, since you were talking about that, uh, Carly, Ksenia, and I all spent time in Miami. And uh, there was this thing that I heard sort of in the periphery at times that I didn't know how to feel about it, but for anyone unfamiliar, I, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, New World Symphony is almost like a, a minor league symphony. Um, it's a sort of elite training ground for recently graduated, you know, Juilliard Temple sort of students. Um, but anyway, uh, the, the thing I wanted to ask is like people, I heard someone say it's something along the lines of sort of like, it's almost like slave labor. Like you're, you're there, you're performing, but you're not really getting paid. And it, it it is a very high quality orchestra. I mean, it's somewhere in between like a Juilliard orchestra and a professional orchestra. Uh, and that's a, that's kind of hard to come by. What, what are your thoughts on that dynamic, I guess is the right word? That's a good question. I don't, you know, I don't know the scene down there like I used to obviously because I started there 32 years ago. So it's a completely different scene as far as how the orchestra is received in the community. Hey, so you tell them about when you first started, like Oh, it was it was awesome. What, the expectation what do you mean expectation? Well you about? were you were signed for what three months or something like that? Yeah, actually we, we showed up there. I mean they came to audition at, at you know, went around to schools, auditioned. It was in the fall of nineteen eighty seven. And they said, well we can commit to three months. That was what we were all going down there, but none of us had anything else to do. We're like, yay, we're desperate. <laughs> so we showed up for three months. And then after that, it turned into the New World Symphony. It kept going. So, so we were all just thinking, this is what's going to happen. It, it evolved, in other words, you know, and we kind of evolved with it. So when we were down there, it wasn't um, such a fixture in the community that it is now. So what you're saying, Ben, like they give a lot to the community maybe um, there's a level of compensation that needs to reflect that. Um, I can only kind of speak for what it was like when I was there, which is um, to make money practicing and playing music was just, um, it was pretty thrilling. So that's not to be all rose colored glasses. Yeah, yeah. I'm Pollyanna, but that's how I felt at the time. Um, and I feel like that I heard John Park said something not about New World Symphony, but I think the transfers very well. It's like, you know what, like, you get a, like free housing. I think they get a stipend for, you know, for food. And it's like, if you don't like it, I mean, 
go do something else. <laughs> but it's a, it's a fantastic sort of postgraduate learning opportunity for people that haven't won their orchestral audition yet, but are obviously very well on their way. Um, Carly. I threw this idea out there as well in the book. I think I said that, you know, we got enough money to support ourselves, but not enough to like do anything else or have hobbies. So that was kind of good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carly, the, I think you had something. The analogy oh, sorry, of Chris, a, a minor league um, baseball team is actually, is actually very fair because I talked to a minor league baseball player one time and, and he was uh, honest enough to tell me what they were making. And it, it was literally the equivalent of, I don't know, twenty twenty six thousand dollars a year, you know, playing, food. Yeah, playing on a playing on a professional team, even though it's minor league, you know, and and um, but and I asked the guy, you know, so then, but so it's not a money thing. Why do you do it? And he just kind of looked at me like that's a, I don't understand the question. And that's how it is for the people that show up at New World Symphony. It's like you know, it's an opportunity to further your craft, and um, it, it, it's a good one actually. It's a good resume oh, yeah. point too. I think there's probably something in not having not being comfortable like this is good for now this is okay for now but i can't do this for, i mean you can't stay at new world past three or four years anyway but um, something. yeah like we say to anyone who's down there it's like well congratulations now get out right now <laughs> you're yeah. out as quickly as you can yeah right <laughs> well patty i wanted to say um you and i have never met and i wasn't on the show three years ago when you were on but i i read your book uh, a couple years ago and thank you so much for giving a voice to those to your stories to the stories of anxiety and sexual harassment because i think both of those issues are things that can be very isolating to people that are going through it and it's just uh, you know i'm sure you hear all the time it's a huge comfort to people who have had those experiences to know here's a person who also felt this and here's you know in this case here's where she is now it's a success so thank you for that i think it's a huge huge resource for our community as percussionists and as musicians and you know I'm sure non-musicians read your book as well and, and can connect with so much that happens there. Um, I wanted to ask actually both of you segueing a little bit um, we talked about the conversation the difficult conversation uh, maybe with students that aren't aren't showing the right level of commitment or interest and maybe need to look elsewhere now in these these really strange times i think students and professionals alike and you know everybody in between might be having issues staying motivated and really efficient in practicing and continuing with projects do do either of you have any tips or advice for staying on top of those kinds of things okay. we're looking uh, for silver bullets <laughs> please it's for me i would say because because my uh opera job is seasonal it's six months a year. I've had, I've had like this COVID schedule for 30 years. I've had half a year where I have to force myself to do other things, musical, non-musical, everything in between. So when this kind of hit, I was like, this is very weird. Everybody's on my schedule. <laughs> of course, it's going a lot longer. I mean, I'm not going to work till next May. That's the soonest they said we are going back. So wow. it's lasting a lot longer than, than normal, but this for oh, me- sorry. Um, next next may being 2021 or 22 2021 sorry okay good good <laughs> oh, no, I, well that's that's sort of the earliest so yeah um uh, for me um we we've been doing online content uh we actually had a virtual gala i've i've contributed to here and there two or three uh projects that are very short um uh, I have actually 
yet to be able to have full access to the hall where all of my instruments or temple where the rest of my instruments are for students to practice on, both are in lockdown. So um, I literally have had very uh, limited access to practice at all. Um, so as far as motivation goes, I'm very motivated uh, to, to get back in practice. Um, it, it, it's, I, I had this conversation with students um, at Temple to finish out the semester, we had a series of online uh, classes together, and I just tried to tell them that, um, you know, the ability to do this might be gone, but the ability to do this is still there. So on some level, you just got to basically just kind of transition and think of it differently. Um, that's not to say that it's going to completely make up for the fact that we're in a really bad situation, all of us are. But there are things you can do to rather than just completely hit pause and do nothing. So, and we're also in a, a different place. You know, we're older and and on the backside of the, our careers. Um, but I would say for for young students, like if I were in the situation when I was still Juilliard or still New World, I you know, kids that age are really great at self motivation. You have to be. Nobody sits there and tells you to practice. So you just kind of have to take that to a different level. Like, okay, this is my schedule. I am making the schedule for myself. If your goal is to, you know, go as pointed as taking auditions, think about those auditions that will eventually happen. That's all I would be able to do, I think, if I was still in that age range. I mean, are, are, you, are you asking for specifics of, of, of if I was a student right now, what I would do? Well, sure. If you if you have a specific answer like that, I, I think as far as motivation goes, I, I see it. You know, it's something I'm hearing from my students like off and on over the summer. It's a long summer, right? Just like sometimes sometimes we're up and sometimes we're down. And I see other people kind of experiencing the same. But okay, well, um, let's say if I'm an undergrad and I know that I've got a recital of some substance coming up, but I wasn't originally thinking of doing it until maybe next spring. Um, I would actually start to to reevaluate. Maybe I could do that in the fall, and I should actually start putting together what would be a, a potential uh, recital program. Eliminating things that won't work, adding things that will work, checking in with my teacher, sending it to them, and 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 getting timings down on all those pieces. Um, uh, having clear ideas of how um, logistically those might work together to form the perfect recital that I want to put together and, and present. You know. Um, if I don't have access to instruments right now, what can I do to change that? Does that mean that I actually might need to, um, to, to, to pay somebody for the use of their instruments where I never had to consider that before? Um, if, if I do have access to instruments, but it's limited, am I taking maximum advantages of the hours that those instruments are available? Um, if, uh, it, and right now, since everything seems to be online, ironically, as we're talking online, um, I would be searching out and seeking out the people that I have actually not had time to or not really thought much about getting information from because they're out there. Those people are out there. Um, I can tell you, and Patty can too, um, with our careers, we've run into our number of people that are jerks out there. There are some out there, but there's not a whole lot no. out there. Really. All <laughs> angels. Well, angels. I, I, I didn't mention your name, please. But anyway, um, uh, it, it, those people that want to help you are out there. But 
it's up to you to be proactive to search out those people because you wouldn't want them contacting you constantly saying, hey, are you doing those things that I've been saying in my method books or blah, blah, blah. That, that would be ridiculous. You wouldn't want that. But if you want their help, you know, it's up to you to go and seek, seek it out. And uh, this, these days, it's even easier than it ever, you know, because you don't have to physically go and meet anyone. You can literally talk to them uh, in in their living room while you're in your living room. I mean, it's, that's, that's, that's actually kind of a gift if you think about it. It's like taps, man. That was lecture and Q&A overload. I mean, there was, I was amazed. Chris and I both participated in the Ted Cats percussion seminar online and just the roster he was able to gather of everyone. It was just yeah, really... The funny thing is, as soon as, that, as soon as that was wrapping up, then I see online Manhattan has their own version and and that that's just as, as intensive all the people on there right and and i just thought oh my gosh like would that be overload if i had just gone through taps would i jump right into another one you know because it was right it was very, it was very intensive but yeah so there's the, plenty to do there's it's also great. now like there's like a steve weiss marimba thing i think she Wu is heading yeah there's there's so many of these you just look at the roster and it's like I, can, I can't imagine attending a camp with all those people in, in real life. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it is so easy. One of my favorite phrases in life is be careful what you ask for, you just might get it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, because uh, you, there, there is a lot of content out there and you, you have to be selective about what's, what you can really commit to and, and what's going to be effective for you. But, you know, um, actually to be more specific, even here's another idea to approach. Um, if I were in um, a student, um, someone in the position of trying to take auditions for orchestras right now. Well, obviously there are no auditions for orchestras right now. Orchestras aren't even performing right now. Well, how do I approach that? Well, um, I, I would want to uh, sit down and logistically maybe coordinate um, some of the materials that I have that have been spread out in various notebooks and that kind of a thing and make it a lot more organized than I ever did before. I'd want to be checking with people who have taken auditions hey, can you send me that audition list from this other audition that I didn't take years ago to see, compare what I actually what might be expected to play once orchestras are up back and running again? Um, I, I would want to be d diving deeper into um, some of the aspects that maybe I didn't have time to before because I was literally just practicing excerpts or practicing scales or trying to improve my technique. Um, there, there are still, you know, I would want to be listening um, instead of just the, the one minute of the excerpt of the recording that I have, I don't want to listen to the whole recording and, and try to put that in context about, well, maybe that might provide a little bit more information as to my decisions on how I might practice and then execute these at an audition. Rather than just knowing that one little uh, timpani pedaling passage, I want to know what happened 15 minutes before that or eight minutes after, you know, I, that's, that kind of stuff actually means something. I hope you agree, Casey. But. I, well, I want, I wanted to mention you tell one, one other. <laughs> I wanted yeah. to mention one one other thing with all this. So part of the reason that that I asked uh, Patty and Chris to be on the podcast today is that the San Francisco Opera Orchestra put out a little video uh, featuring Patty. I think they're doing it for several of their musicians. Um, but it was just it was a lovely little glimpse into into Patty's life right now. Uh, and one thing that I think we forget, and I hate to be the guy that after we're talking about serious, like taking auditions and all this stuff, is like, we, we can also enjoy music. <laughs> and I, obviously, if you're on the path of orchestral auditions, you need to keep your chops in shape and all. But uh, Patty and Chris, I know, have been, have been rocking out these hang drums that are sitting behind them. So could you tell us about how you, how you got into those and how much fun you've been having with those? You, you know what, 
it was driven by something that is portable, literally. Because, you know, there's Kimmel. You can see Kimmel through the window, but I haven't been able to get in. Chris can only get in to, to take things out of there. So it was kind of driven by that. You know, I mean, we have just a limited number of things here. He actually brought a Glock over at one point to do, there was an online thing and yeah. he had to practice with soft mouths here in the apartment and then took it down to the storage room to, to record. So it, it's been creative that's why like it was that. driven. Yeah, it was, it's just been creative um, as far as those particular instruments. Um, uh, Rolando Morales, who is a percussionist in Lion King on Broadway. Um, and uh, he, he went to Temple here. He, his brother, um, Ricardo Morales, plays principal clarinet in our orchestra. So Rolando, he's also one of the extras that plays with our orchestra from time to time. And he turned me on to these drums because um, the original drums were, were called hang drums from uh, Belgium. Um, they're essentially, instead of an inverted pan, like a steel pan, it's a tortoise shell, the opposite. But you play with your hand, you can play with mouse too, but he turned me on to these because these were, were new. Uh, they're called VAST, V-A-S-T. They're from Russia. Um, and so I just bought a couple of them, not having any idea when I would ever use them. And they just sat in the percussion room for the longest time. And then lo and behold, it's like one of the few things that I can actually get my hands on now. Flash jam. Let's hear it. Oh, wow. wow, look at that. I thought they'd say no. They vote. <laughs> they take requests. That was awesome. Venmo is, we're just going to put a tag down there in the description box. Well, it's nice to know there's an alternative to the other hung drums and the, I forget what the other brand is called, but the, the waiting list is like years and you got to win a lottery to get one made. And yeah, those sound know, good. Rolando told me a really, uh, Rolando Morales, um, when he told me about these, the reason why he got these was because of that um, difficulty in acquiring the hang drums. Evidently, uh, the guy that made, made them um, found out that people were selling them on eBay and he got really mad. Um, and um, he decided that the only way he was going to sell them to somebody was if he actually met them in person and he decided that they were worthy of selling them to. So they, wow. would, um, they would literally have to go to Belgium, I think outside of oh, Brussels crap. somewhere. And, and Rolando, who was on tour with Ron Carter, the bassist, the jazz bassist, he was on tour in Europe and he had sent Ron Carter to this guy's house because he had to leave early. And Ron Carter shows up at this guy's house and knocks on his door. And, and this guy didn't recognize Ron Carter, and he, but he didn't know that someone was coming by. And he said, he said, yeah, I'm here to pick up the hang drum. And he said, no, 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 you, you've got the wrong place. He said, no, 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 this is the right place. I was told to come. And he said, he said no, no, I don't have an appointment with you. Just go away. And he turned Ron Carter away. So Ron Carter left. Oh, yes. Oh, and so Ron Carter calls Ron up, Carter. yeah, he calls up Rolando and he said, um, did you give me the right address? Because this guy had no idea. He said, no, it's the right address. The guy's very strange, but you just need to persist. He, he was still in town. He came back the next day 
and the guy was so embarrassed that that he had uh, told Ron Carter to go away, um, and he invited him in, and of course he gave him the hand drum. But um, the, yeah, the, those drums are very difficult to acquire, and uh, you know, as um, proprietary kind of issues uh, surface, someone else decided, you know, I'll just make my own. So um, it's like uh, secondary to water phone. It sounds like the most difficult <laughs> instrument to get. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, and um, but go on, go online and check out the the, the website Vast V A S T. They're they're pretty creative. Cool. Those Russians, they they will find a way around everything. <laughs> Kidding. Love Russians. Love Russians. Love them. Um, I was going to ask, uh, perhaps you guys have some uh, more insight into this, but we've been reading a lot of articles recently about how orchestras choose to stay afloat or try to stay afloat, stay relevant, and the whole issue of whether giving away content, you know, for free online is acceptable or is that a way to keep your uh, audience engaged? Um, and we've seen your beautiful little fun videos that you've recorded for your respective orchestras uh, with you, Chris, playing uh, at home on various things right there on your, on uh, sort of in your kitchen. And then you sharing how you do Pilates, Patty. I mean, that's all really insightful and it does make us feel more connected. We feel like, oh my God, these wonderful people. We're so happy that, you know, they're, they're still going at it. But what do you feel like, especially that you have a perspective between opera and, and a symphony orchestra, what is the, what are their approaches? How, how does one float sort of through this storm? Do they have any brilliant ideas or you think they're just going at it through a fog, a thick fog? I, I think there's a little bit of fog. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think there's a lot of uncharted territory and, and uh, they're, they're they're trying to uh, navigate the best they can. Um, and it's, you know, I, I don't really think anyone has a true handle on the formula for uh, giving away content versus charging for the content. Mm -hmm. But I think ultimately there's going to be a reckoning in the sense that there's no way you can continue to just give it all away. Yeah. Um, and, and if the desire is there, for people to consume that content, there's going to be have they're going to have to be an acknowledgement of you know, what what are they willing to give to get that content. There was um, a great parallel with the New York Times when they first shifted from all print to starting to get online, and they and I remember the days when it was free. The New York Times was free online, and they did that to lure people in, and they took a huge risk, and then they switched to a subscription model. It was fifteen dollars a month to start with. Now it's seventeen. But at the time, they somehow they did it correctly. They lured everyone in. Everybody had this fantastic New York Times for free. And then, oh, not, you know, $15 a month. That's not a big deal. Somehow they did it. And now they have a, a really healthy subscription service online. And maybe that's a parallel that we need to be aware of. You know, yes, we can lure people in with free content, but how do we change it so that we're not just giving away incredible, you know, especially not just performing musicians, but composers, people who spend their lives doing this. They create content and to always give it away, is that fair? How do we monetize it somehow? Of yeah. course, of course. Yeah. I think it's difficult though, because um, obviously there's, there's video and audio content out there for purchase for anybody at any given time for whatever they want, literally. It's, it's, it's just, um, compounding itself with the, the amount of material that's available. And yet the whole reason why we're in this business is for live performance, not for recorded right. performance. Right. So 
those two things are at odds in a way, you know, providing uh, content that's not live almost is kind of uh, counter to what we're all about. So I I don't really think there's a a good formula for it yet. Right, right. Okay. So we we agree that we're all lost, but it's okay. We're all in the same storm. Yeah. yeah. The the thing is, if you're looking for us to give you answers, I don't think you're in the right spot. How many emails have we gotten that say there's no COVID handbook? <laughs> Uncharted territory. Well, uh, Casey, I believe you had a little opera you wanted to share with us today that's actually pretty relevant to today's COVID issues. Yeah, sure. So this opera was written in 2018, and it's called Semmelweis. And Ignat Semmelweis was a doctor, and this is an opera by Ray Lustig. Patty, you're nodding. Do you know this opera? Uh, no, I just, we checked it out online. We just checked out uh, a lot of info about it. There was a link that we watched last night. Yeah, uh, there was cool. From the opera. It was like a joint project uh, in Hungary as well, right? It looks like it's had a few performances. And, you know, speaking of stuff being free or online or not, I was looking so hard for some recording of this opera or some place to stream it and it looks like you could stream the premiere live two years ago but uh yeah i can't find a way to pay for it or anything and of course that's probably because they were planning on doing live performances but it um yeah it it does make me think that yeah we're not really prepared for this because it's 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 such a shame that we can't see this right now because i got really excited and the little excerpt i'll show you is i think really just hauntingly cool and I, I imagine you all will agree but uh yeah so it's called Semmelweis which is the last name of this doctor and physician um named Ignat Semmelweis who is a Hungarian doctor from the 1800s and you might not know it but doctors it was not regular procedure to soap up and and sanitize your hands until like literally like past the middle of the 19th century and this guy played a big part in this. So this opera is like 75 minutes. And in fact, if I'll I, probably... sorry, sorry to interrupt Casey, but if I could add that in this interview that Casey sent, sent us to check out, not only did they not wash their hands, it was actually, it was a sign that you were a, a better doctor, the dirtier, dirtier you were, because that meant you had operated on more patients. Like it was actually a good thing to be dirty, which is mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's like, that's yeah. like the opposite. What I picked up from that interview um, was that the thinking back then also there, there were lots of theories floating around as to why um, uh, pathogens were, well, they didn't call them pathogens. They didn't know what it was, right. but essentially one theory was that there were particles of evil that floated and would land on people's hands. Particles of evil. I thought, <laughs> wow. We come a long way. Oh my gosh. Well, it's been a theme with several of my topics, just kind of by coincidence, but superstition has been a huge part. I mean, I think superstition is why we still have racism today. I think it's why we still have people not washing their hands regarding COVID. We have people not wearing their masks. They just like don't believe the science they're being told and they're superstitious about who to trust. And, uh, and all of that is really, really kind of, kind of sad. So, um, but yeah, you're exactly right. And actually he called these, um, the term he came up with was cadaver particulates. He said, there are cadaver particulates on our hands because in his hospital ward, so Ignat Semmelweis was the like like chief ch- chief doctor at uh, educational clinic. So he had students coming in, and there was the cadaver lab right here, 
Okay, students have to operate on cadavers. They have to examine them. They have to cut them open. And then right across the hallway was a maternity ward. So these doctors would literally deliver a baby, go over to the other room, work on a cadaver, and then go back to the maternity ward and just back and back and forth. And so he saw, he figured it out because supposedly one of the students uh, cut their finger and then showed the same type of bedside fever as the mother's. And he said, well, wait a minute, like, like this looks way too similar to not be related. And so he said, okay, it has something to do with the cadaver area. So he said, okay, we're going to start using chlorine to wash our hands before we go into the maternity ward. Like, duh, oh my God, you know. And uh, so, yeah, the chlorine, of course, killed the, the, hand, the, uh, the, the germs, but he didn't, know, he didn't know what germs were. Like, they literally didn't know what germs were as late as 1860-something. He also talked about, or they were talking about this doctor um, said, made a comment that the microscope was a, was a toy. Get that toy yeah. away. So <laughs> yeah. talking about people that are the top of, of what's going on in their field. And even they sometimes don't even recognize the, the tools that will help them further their own field. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and something that didn't help is he didn't have a good explanation for it. He just said, I just know that the cadaver lab has something to do with it. And, and once we started Cloroxing, chlorine, like our hands, the, the death rate just plummeted. And the graph is great. I mean, it goes like this. And I think it's like 1860 something, just like, boom, it sky, skyrockets down to the ground. You know, it just totally goes to the ground. I think the, the percentage was 18.7 women, so almost 19% of women giving birth in that particular clinic died from crib bedside fever. And once they introduced this hand washing, it went down to 1%, and then they kept doing it and did it more thorough, and it went to zero. So he passed this around all around Vienna, and he didn't have a good explanation for it. So I guess his, his personality oh, was... Uh, the particles of evil. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and what's funny is like, <laughs> some, like particles of evil or even he, he first explored if there's different groups of religious people in the two clinics. So in this clinic that has a low rate of death, are they of a different religious affiliation? Like there's so much superstition in the air and just the progress towards uh, germ theory. The first thing is called um, uh, humoral theory. So that's what we've heard of in the medieval ages where you use leeching and bloodletting and uh, blistering, which is like disgusting because they really believed illness and disease was caused by an imbalance in the four, four liquids of the, the body, which is blood and the two biles and mucus. It's, uh, so they literally thought that's what you did. And then the era that Ignaz Samuelweis is from is the miasma theory. So they believed that bad smells were what caused disease, which is a much better theory because we know bad smells are at least related. So he thought the chlorine, he noticed washing your hands with chlorine got rid of the cadaver smell. So he thought that's what was doing it. It got rid of the smell, thus it got no miasma going into the birthing room. But it was like, it was gnarly. I mean, there was, there were women who were begged to not give birth in that, that clinic, in that hospital. There were people giving birth in the streets, in the alleys, instead of going into that clinic. And the mortality rates in the alleys were better than the mortality rates in the clinic. So, I mean, he was like, he was heart-wrenched by this, and he eventually suffered a mental breakdown. And I'm just going to read real quick 
from some program notes uh, from the uh, American Opera Project, Semmelweis, a new 75-minute musical theater work inspired by a tragic story of the 19th century Hungarian obstetrician Ignaz Semmelweis, and his dates are 1818 to 1865. So sometimes I hear it called an opera, sometimes I hear it called a musical. I, I think they're just kind of trying to be hip with what they call it so they don't brand it to opera people or musical people or not, but it's certainly opera, like you listen to it, it's opera. Uh, let's see, so he discovered a cure for a devastating epidemic but could not convince the world of the simple solution and died alone in an asylum. Dr. Semmelweis had been the first to see an unthinkable truth that the deadly disease was passing from bodies of the dead to healthy mothers on unwashed hands of doctors themselves. Uh, skipping down just a little bit. What's that phrase, unwashed hands of doctors? Can you even... I mean, that, that's that's frightening to think about. It's frightening. That's it, worse, yeah. th th there's kind of a bigotry component to this, too, because they said they had this Hungarian doctor trying to tell these gentlemen Vienna doctors oh, what yeah. to do in Austria. And they're mm -hmm. saying, like, what? Don't tell us we have unclean hands. You mm -hmm. know, like, you can't even explain this thing. We, 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 we don't have that. Uh, moving on just a little bit, uh, through the year 2018, oh sorry, uh, though the year 2018 marked the 200th birthday of Ignaz Semmelweis, our world seems to still not have been absorbed the powerful lessons of this story. There has never been a more urgent moment in history to reflect on the mystery of insight, the tension between truth and herbarus through cultural myopia. And the clear truth is that we as individuals and as a society need our outsiders, our fresh and brave ideas, literally to survive. Ksenia, you didn't think I knew that word myopia, did you? No, I didn't. That's pretty impressive. Wow. Good job. Sticker. <laughs> you, you did mispronounce hubris, though. I did. I know. Thank you. Yeah, hubris. Yeah, that's not a word you hear. I, I hear myopic and myopia more often than I hear hubris. But I just, I just wanted to show you all a square she, uh, screen share, excuse me, a quick little excerpt from it. And man, if you're watching, or if you're not watching, please turn to YouTube and watch because the text is just like freaking haunting. So let's see.
So, yeah, just a quick little excerpt, and if you, uh, oops, hang on, what am I doing? Sorry. Am I still screen sharing? No. No. Okay, good, good, good. Yeah, I'm a little slow to, uh, to Skype. I, I just wanted to, uh, mention the, the text that if you were just listening, you, you didn't see, but, um, it goes, let's see. I was seeing text. There were subtitles. You saw it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm just for our listeners. I was just gonna say, and I just it just gives me chills. It says, "Look out, look out, give birth, give birth." Unless you know it's midwives' day, unless you know, you know what is the day. In the doctor's word, they'll make you stay. And believe me when I say you'll die that way. Stay away, stay away, or wait until it's midwives' day. So he's talking about like if you know it's just the midwives doing it like if you're going to the midwives clinic which i guess was a neighboring clinic that didn't have the cadaver lab right next to it where the the mortality rates were far far lower they're saying like go there so it's all the, it's all the the um pregnant women and the the, the choir supposed well, to be the spirits and, and the, the also died in, in the in the interview, they talked about the, the midwives. It, it was part of their tradition, like the doctors wanted to be dirty. The midwives, it was their tradition to wash before they before they gave birth. And so, and they when Edelweiss, Semmelweiss <laughs> was telling uh, the doctors they needed to wash, they were like, "No, that's that's what the that's what the women do. Like, we're, we don't we don't you know we don't do that. Right. We're doctors. So, yeah, don't listen to women. Amazing, they right? Be on the brink of knowledge at any time. Yeah. <laughs> so um, 2018, yeah, and it's just funny that how uh, how significant it is today. And a lot of people are talking about this doctor now. You see a lot of things on the the YouTubes and the places like that. Because all of a sudden he's, uh, yeah, he's he's super relevant all all of a sudden again. But uh, yeah, you know, I thought I'd highlight the opera. I thought it was really cool. There's opera about it. That is really. Sonia, cool. I think you had something. Uh, I was just gonna add. It reminded me of a couple of things. One was there was an experiment that they do, did on on pigeons, I think, um, and they would you know release food into this cage or whatever it was at any certain time interval. And if the pigeon had happened to be, you know, flapping its wings at the time the food was dispensed, it thought it connected the two, the flapping and the food. So it thought it gained the superstition that it should keep flapping its wings in order to receive food. And sometimes we as humans, I feel like we do the same. Um, and just, you know, thinking about medical progress, it's so interesting. If you read uh, Bill Bryson's book about the body, the most recently published one, which is so cool. I mean, so much of medical progress came by pure chance, a person getting shot accidentally and surviving and a doctor being there and seeing a hole in the stomach and saying, will you, sir, let me pay for you to stay and live in my house while I examine you and keep you alive? And the person said yes, and that's how we realized that there's like acidity in your stomach, which is insane. I mean, just imagine, but it helped the progress of science, uh, medical science. So yeah, I mean, it's important to know that uh, doctors try, I guess. And definitely nowadays, wash your hands against those evil particles, you know, <laughs> it's really important. Wash your hands, wear a mask. That book yeah. is on the back of books next to my bed right now for me to read that. Oh, really? Oh, it's a, I love it. The book is so cool. Yeah. I recommend it. Well, it just makes me think like, what are we, what are we missing right now? If 200 years ago or a little less than 200 years ago, we didn't know that, you know, Hey, wash your hands and it'll prevent the spread of disease. 
Um, you know, this work, Casey, thanks for sharing this with us all. I hadn't heard about it. It reminds me of the value of music and really all arts through these challenging times, especially in this case, because it's, you know, it's a, a commentary on current events. It's telling a story and it's something that can help all of us kind of understand and cope with and get through these times and, and hopefully learn from the past um, through art. So I thought it was a really, really nice story. Well, Casey, thank you so much for sharing. Um, I had one more thing I wanted to, to bring up before we wrapped, and we sort of joked about this before we started recording, but Patty and Chris actually have a cat named Steve Weiss. <laughs> um, and Casey mentioned that, that Chris worked at Steve Weiss, which I did not know. And this Chris worked at Steve Weiss Music, not Steve Weiss the cat. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> could you, could I, Steve Weiss is one of those just characters that just has such a reputation in our field. Could you tell us about, I'm assuming it was during Steve Weiss's younger days that you worked there. Could you tell us about Steve Weiss? And there is Steve Weiss making his podcast appearance. <laughs> Here's our Steve. Oh my God. Um, yeah, our COVID cat. We, we didn't have a cat before COVID and then it was a perfect opportunity. And now you do. <laughs> Um, Steve Weiss was also a, a very pivotal uh, person in my life. Uh, when I came to Temple for grad school in 87, I, I started working for him off and on uh, part-time. Literally, uh, he would pay me in instruments. He didn't pay me in, in any money. I literally said, I need a xylophone or I need a marimba or whatever. And he would sit, send me to the warehouse, pick it out, and then I would work it off, you know, and move on to the next instrument that way, which was good for me, you know. Um, but... Um, Steve was a really unique guy. I don't think I've ever met anyone like him. I don't think anyone will be quite like him in the, in the percussion industry. He was a former percussionist himself. He studied with Mickey Books Band, the former principal percussionist of the Philadelphia Orchestra, my predecessor, actually. Um, he decided that he really didn't have the, uh, the drive or even the technique, really, to be a professional percussionist. He got into the transportation industry, worked for, for um, shipping with trains and, and trucks. And that's actually where he developed a skill of how to get things from one place to another, the cheapest. And um, he literally uh, bought percussion instruments and put them in the trunk of his car and would drive around town to various locations, Curtis, Temple, different schools around the area, and literally just open up his trunk and say, you know, you want to buy any of this stuff, you know, and that's kind of how it started. He got a... Um, uh, a, a row house, um, if you know the Northeast, that's a typical structure that people live in where they share common walls on either side. And he had one of those as a three-story row house up in um, the far North Philadelphia. Um, that's when I started working for him. It was just Steve. He had a secretary named Cheryl and me. It was just it. That was it. Steve used to not only take the orders, he used to run downstairs and pack them himself. Um, it was a very bare bones thing. It, it still is actually. Um, and that was one of the things that made it um, more affordable than other businesses because his profit margin was so small. Typically his profit margin was somewhere between 10 and 12% on anything. And if you talk to any retailer these days, most of them hate Steve Weiss because uh, they feel like he's ruining their industry. And Steve's point was, Hey, you can do it too. If you want to, you just don't want to, you know? So um, uh, Steve, uh, Steve, Steve had a, um, a soft spot in his heart for um, percussionists and musicians and particularly world percussionists, people that were trying to acquire instruments that they normally couldn't get out of, a, um, say, a, a Musser catalog or a Yamaha catalog, whatever. Um, if you wanted an instrument that you didn't even know what it was, but you just heard the name of, you call Steve up, even if he didn't know it, he would find out and he would get it for you. 
And th there are very few places that are, well, actually there are more places now, but at the time there were zero places except Steve to go and get that kind of stuff. Um, my experience with Steve, uh, I worked with him uh, while I was taking auditions. While I was in grad school, I went away and did a job in New Orleans for five years. I came back to Philadelphia where I was freelancing some with New York and Philadelphia. And I worked for, full time for Steve, 44 hours a week. Um, he, he could be a difficult person uh, to, to, to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, but really he was just kind of a, a really a teddy soft. bear. Yeah, he was a little softy ultimately. But I had students when I was in Houston Symphony, I would tell my students to call up Steve Weiss and some of them would say, oh, I, I, I can't do that. And I would say, what, what are you saying? So, well, the last time he, he yelled at me and, and uh, I, I get on the line and I'd say, Steve, what the hell are you doing yelling at students? Don't you, are you an idiot? They're trying to buy stuff from you. you, what are you, you know, don't scare these kids away. And he's like, well, they don't know what they want. It's like, well, why don't you try to be patient? <laughs> so um, he, he, was, he could be a gruff guy, but um, he... Yeah. Tell about the list. Tell about the wall. Oh, so up at Temple right now, I have a piece of um, of wall um, cement. Well, it's not like... cement. It's uh, it's plaster. It's wall plaster that was cut out of the wall when they sold that place and moved up to Willow Grove. They're in a completely different location now. But when I was working for him, I would go and take an audition. I would not win. I'd come back to work that following week, and he would very sincerely at first want to know how did the audition go, and I would say. Uh, Oh, I made the finals or runner up or whatever it was, you know, I got cut and, and he would like for about five seconds seem, you know, very concerned, like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And then he would grab a Sharpie and he'd bite the cap off of it and he'd walk over to the wall and he would write the name of that city on what he called Chris Cavini's wall of shame. Wow. <laughs> it was, it was a long, long list of all the auditions that I lost. And what a motivator. <laughs> If you came into Steve Weiss Music, you always came up to the second floor where his office was, and right at the stair, at the, the landing, you would see this long list of cities, and every damn person that would come in that place would say, what, what's this list? And then Steve would explain, this is Chris's Divinity's wall of shame. Vinny's wall of shame. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's funny now. You know, now, <laughs> I can, now I can really laugh at it. But at the time, it, it, you know, it was really, it was quite an ordeal, honestly. I know you told us how many in, at TAPS. How many was it? I took 31. 31. Oh, rub it in, Casey. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's, he's, he's open about it. He's, he's out. You said, you said that some re retailers were saying Steve Weiss like, is ruining the, the business? Why, why would they say that? Or why were they saying that? Because, you know... Um, Probably a long time. Well, okay. Yeah. So typically back then, at least, um, and things haven't changed that much, but... Steve would get an order, say somebody wanted to buy a Yamaha five-piece drum set. Steve would literally call up Yamaha and say, drop ship it to California where this person's ordering it from. He didn't have to stock it. Yeah. He would just drop ship it. So Steve would make a, a much reduced profit margin, say 10% on a drum set that normally somebody would make 35% profit on because they're actually stocking it. So Steve figured out a way to sell the same exact equipment that everybody else was doing without having a showroom. Yeah. Kind of pre, like pre-internet. Pre-internet. Oh yeah, this was all before internet. And so essentially being a mail order shop, um, he could fly under the radar because he didn't have to stock predetermined amounts of, of, of product and, and display them for people to actually look at um, and thereby cutting down on his overhead. Yeah. Well, and you youngins listening probably don't remember this, but you used to have to go into a music shop. Like you had to go into your local music shop to buy some sticks and sticks that would cost 
$12 on Steve Weiss, they could cost anything from $12 to $80 in that shop, you know, and you, it, it was ridiculous. And then you try to tell the person, is, is this really what this costs? And they'd fight you and they were always rude. And, oh, I, I hated music stores. I mean, in music stores, I was just, I was so happy just to buy everything from Steve Weiss because, um, I mean, they just literally rip you off. And now I'm older. If I go into one, I'll say like, hey, I'll, I'll pay you this much for this if you if you want to give it to me. Right. When they're when like, was, this is, this is an amazing thing. Yeah. Be like, no, it's not. It's worth this much. And I found out about Steve Weiss when I was in high school, actually. And I called and, at, and ordered some stuff. And uh, he just literally sent me a bill. He just said, send me a check. He didn't have, he would actually send orders to people with no credit card because I didn't have a credit card. I was in high school. And so I get this uh, shipment one day. And my mom says, there's a package for you. And I said, oh, great. I got the stuff. And she said, you got stuff. What, how did, how did you pay for this stuff? And I said, Oh, I didn't have to pay for it. You have to send them a check. And, and my <laughs> said, what, what do you mean? I have to send a check. I said, well, th that's what he said to do. And she said, who is this guy? I mean, like who does this? Yeah. Hey, Hey, what's a good markdown for sheet music? Is there a standard? I want more money. I want, I'm tired of Randy taking so much of my money. What should I be charging? Steve, Steve, Steve typically actually did make more on sheet music than yeah. 10%. I think he made somewhere around between 30. I want to say 30. Okay. Yeah, that's about what I think it is. Okay. And cool. I mean, also I on that note, where like where else can you get almost any of our sheet music other than just Steve Weiss? I mean, let me tell you a story. <laughs> when I first started working for Steve, uh, Drums Unlimited had the largest collection of sheet music, uh, not just sheet music, but method books and videotapes were new at the time, VHS videotapes um, of drum set players and so forth. And he wanted to compete with that. He wanted to, to go directly after Drums Unlimited at the time. And I said, okay, Steve, uh, but you realize that like, you don't even have a catalog that, it, that shows that you sell all this stuff. So what do you want to do about that? And he said, well, I don't know, you, you want to start putting that together? I said, okay. So that, that kind of became my job. I started actually, um, listing all the method books that he currently had but then he started ordering tons and tons of new music anything that alfred put out any of the big publishers um, meredith music was a big one um uh, anyway they as they started to come in i realized well somebody needs to grade these someone needs to know what how to classify these things like obviously somebody who's a beginner is not going to be buying the same material as somebody who's advanced and they need to understand the difference so i literally started documenting at least in my opinion what as a grad student at temple what i would consider to be beginner level versus advanced and all the levels in between so that's what i started doing and then eventually i said steve you're gonna have to get this to where people see this online and he fought me every step of the way he was like oh i don't want to do that online stuff it's just more expense and the setup costs and blah 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 and now actually these days uh, my understanding is when they come in before they even open the door at 10 o'clock for the employees to come in they've already got 60 orders to push out the door that day you know and it's all because of online sales. So, you know, sometimes it, it, even even the owners that built the business, like Steve Weiss, uh, didn't really see what ultimately the business would become. It's so great now. I mean, I'm just amazed. My one of our our, our secretaries here also just were blown away. I mean, I'll order something today, and it's here tomorrow. It's amazing how how well oiled Steve Weiss is now. And I, I remember when it was not that way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and I, just to sort of echo what Chris said, I, I really think that uh, Steve Weiss and Martin Cohen, who's the founder of LP, 
are the two industry people that have affected us as percussionists probably more than most players, composers, et cetera. I mean, these are people that have just created what we have today. Um, Steve Weiss also throughout the years has saved quite a bit of money on customer service. (laughs) If you've ever called them, I, I, I remember my, I was 14 or 15. The first time I ever had a Steve Weiss order, my mother called to order yellow after the rain for me. And Steve Weiss picks up the phone, literally Steve Weiss, uh, not an employee, but Steve Weiss, the man himself, picks up the phone and just says, what do you want? <laughs> no, hello, right. not how yeah. can I help you? I mean, it was just like, and like we, my, my teacher had warned us that's how they were. And, at, but at the same rate, like, it's a pleasure to do business with them. Like, it's, you're not going to find any better prices. The stuff gets there if you're on the East Coast in the day. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very good business. Yeah. <laughs> They what one when Steve was no longer uh, around, um, either managing the business day to day or after he died, uh, Dan Sullivan, who took over Steve Weiss Music, um, definitely shifted the whole culture of of uh, customer service. But my favorite Steve Weiss story uh, when I was working there was um, a phone call I witnessed where a guy calls up uh, a dad um, calling up uh, to order mallets for his daughter who played in the band. And the call went something like this. Um, I, I need to order like some mallets or something like that for my daughter. And Steve already can, it, you can sense his blood pressure getting higher because he, he knows this guy doesn't really know what he wants. So he's, he starts to try to patiently walk through, you know, okay, well, what, what, what kind of instrument is she playing? And the guy says, I, I don't know. I think it's xylophone or bells or something. And Steve says, oh, okay. Uh, do you want, um, do you want, yarn or cord or do you want to like phenolic or you know what the guy says I, I i think like hard you know something like that and he says okay listen do you want uh rattan do you want uh dowel do you want uh two-tone uh shafts what, what, what do you want the guy says i i you know i i don't know i mean I, you know and the guy says listen and steve then to finish the call he just went ahead had it with the guy and he said what's your what's your daughter's favorite color <laughs> yeah, so what, what do you mean he said what's her what's her favorite color and he said uh i would say blue he says i'll send her some blue mouths <laughs> get something right at least <laughs> and, and i said steve and i was standing right there i said steve what why why are you doing said, the guy didn't know what he wanted he has no idea it's like this steve <laughs> And just pass it off to somebody else. Don't ruin your business like this. I mean, obviously, you know, they need some help and they need to have their hand be held. And that's fine. That's what we're all here for. But don't, you know, freaking destroy your business with idiotic comments like that. So these are kind of conversations that I had with Steve when I was working with him, for sure. Wow. Are there Yelp reviews of Steve Weiss? I need to go look <laughs> Oh, gosh. I think you had something. Well, back then, Yelp wasn't a thing. And if it was, it would have just killed him. Oh, my him. God, It yeah. just would have killed him. Is, no, it, is it true if you I, ordered I, the right kind of mallets? This is not just this is not just because they're up the road from me here in Philadelphia, but um, I, I would still do all my business with Steve Weiss. Of course, I have a sentimental attachment, of course, because I work there. Yes, but um, they're they're very good on customer service. Dan is constantly monitoring how things are perceived yeah. online, and if there's a problem, he'll he'll fix it. So uh, th- those days are over, but. You know that that kind of attitude and that edge that Steve brought was was kind of some of the charm of doing business with them, honestly. Well, I know I always had to know, like, okay, have all your ducks in a row so that you can just get what you need, and you know, have your mom's credit card with you when you call them. Because here's you're... the funny thing: because Steve worked um, a full day on Saturdays, he always listened to the Met Opera, always, and he knew more about opera 
opera than I knew at all. And I had played some operas in New Orleans, uh, concert operas in uh, other areas. And he, uh, he, he always dabbled in trying to um, uh, expand his thinking and, and knowledge of certain things. Um, he, he was studying Hungarian for a while because he was of Hungarian descent. Um, he only knew uh, curse words mostly in Hungarian. Um, he also then for a and English. <laughs> and then for a while he uh, was studying magic because um, in the little town in Hungary where he was from, his dad was a rabbi along with another rabbi whose last name happened to be um, uh, Harry Houdini's uh, huh. family. And wow. Steve was convinced that he was actually related to Harry Houdini. And so he wanted to like study his magic and, you know, and I, I thought that was hilarious. One day he's reading this big, thick book of Harry Houdini's magic tricks. And, you know, he's like trying to tell me all about it. And I'm just looking at him like, dude, dude you're not going to be a magician. What are you talking about? You, know, so. you should have started your own wall of like, <laughs> Steve believes in magic. <laughs> hey, is, is is it true if you is it true if you ordered the right kind of mallets the you know like the Musser M fifty one A's you'd get a dime bag in the mail with it? Um, no, not he, he. He would never send you anything like that in the mail because um, he he would did not believe in that. But <laughs> um, there were there are quite a few stories working there where things popped up from time to time and and. Uh, he had interesting, colorful friends around the neighborhood. Put it that way. Uh huh. I've heard rumors. Uh huh. Wow, funny. Yeah. D dime bag is a word for like a small bag of weed. <laughs> I thought it was like ten pennies in a bag. A dime bag? No. Like oh, Ben. All right, Ben, take us, save us. <laughs> well, save thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you, Patty and Chris, and we hope to see you on the next one, episode two hundred forty-three. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Bye.